I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. My guest this week is my colleague Adam Schatz, the LRB's US editor. His essay collection, Writers and Missionaries, many of them from the LRB, was published last May. And his new biography of Franz Fanon, The Rebel's Clinic, will be out in January 2024. January will also see the start of his new LRB Close Readings podcast series, Human Conditions. And in that first episode, Judith Butler will be talking to Adam about the revolutionary thought of Jean-Paul Sartre. Today, however, Adam is talking to me about Sartre's one-time friend, colleague, rival, Albert Camus, who Adam wrote about in a recent issue of the LRB. The piece was a review of Travels in the Americas, Camus' Notes and Impressions of a New World, edited by Alice Kaplan and translated by Ryan Bloom. So hello, Adam, and thank you very much for joining me today. Good to talk to you, Tom. So Camus is a, a writer and missionary of a kind. But perhaps an archetypal one, I don't know. But the, um, the notebooks and diaries that you wrote about come from two trips that he made in the 1940s, one to North America in 1946 and one to South America in 1949. So he arrived in New York, as this is right, in March 1946 on the SS Oregon to promote, or at least to mark, the publication in English of his novel L'Etranger, which is translated as The Outsider in the UK and The Stranger in the US. So how famous was Camus in the English-speaking world at that point? Camus was uh, was a legend among New York intellectuals, but he wasn't well known to the public because he hadn't yet been translated into English. I think that L'Etranger, The Stranger or The Outsider, was published uh, a week or so after uh, his arrival in New York City. There was um, some knowledge of Camus as this hero of the resistance, as a, as a writer for the uh, resistance publication Combat. But um, as I said, he was more of a, of a legend than a known figure then. But he was, he was known to the FBI and to J. Edgar Hoover. Yes, the, the FBI, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, um, had worried that uh, he had published uh, uh, writings unfavorable to American interests. And uh, when he arrived in, in the States, uh, he was detained uh, for questioning. And it was only thanks to the French embassy and specifically to uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss at the French consulate that uh, he was freed. And FBI agents, in fact, uh, informed uh, J. Edgar Hoover that uh, in no way was Albert Camus a threat to U.S. interests. He wasn't even, I mean, Albert Camus by that point was known also to be uh, an anti-communist. But of course, he was a leftist and he was uh, a critic of capitalism. Yeah, but I suppose that Hoover's line of anti-communism was a lot further to the right than, uh, than Camus. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so... Claude Lévi-Strauss, who, I mean, I hadn't realized this, slightly bizarrely, it seems, was the cultural attaché at the French embassy in Washington at this point. You say in the piece that he was he was Camus' host in America. Had that always been the plan, or did that happen because he had to 
to spring him from the clutches of the FBI. No, no, that was that was always the plan. But they didn't much like each other. Uh, I think that uh, Camus regarded uh, Lévi-Strauss as a as a stiff academic. This was about the time. I think this was just before Lévi-Strauss published his classic work on the elementary structures of kinship, and. Uh, Levi-Strauss, in turn, thought of Camus as a kind of pious leftist and was was irritated by him. So this was not a, a match made in heaven. And how much of that disagreement or lack of getting on between them, I mean, was that connected to their experiences during the war? Because Levi-Strauss, I mean, he'd left, he'd left France, hadn't he? He'd spent most of the war in the United States. I mean, did their different experiences of the war affect their relationship, do you think? It's a good question. I, I I don't know. I mean, it's true that you know Camus had been in Algeria, where he was born, and and went to France in 1940, and you know became an early supporter of of the resistance. While Levi Strauss, who was of course Jewish, uh, left in 40 or 41 on the same boat that took André Breton and and uh, I think Victor Serge um, to the New World. But I don't know if their disagreements or dislike of each other was rooted in these different experiences of the war. So his fellow Frenchman, his host in the US, who he didn't get on with terribly well. But what about the Americans that he met? Did he find find them more sympathetic? You know, he seems to have spent much of his time in New York hanging out with European anti-fascist exiles, uh, like the writer Nicola Chiaramonte, um, and the publisher, uh, Jacques Chiffrin, uh, who uh, had been the uh, one of the heads of Gallimard and who was forced to leave because he was Jewish. Uh, his son, of course, André Chiffrin, went on to uh, become an influential editor himself at uh, Pantheon and later the New Press. Probably the closest relationship that he struck up uh, in the States was with a young woman named Patricia Blake, who had been an intern at Vogue magazine, and they began an affair shortly after Camus arrived, and he went everywhere with her. And what about American writers, Richard Wright, for example? He was publishing Richard Wright in France, is that right? Or He was. Um, Richard Wright was published by uh, Les Temps Modernes and by Gallimard, and it was Camus who arranged for him to be published by the time Camus arrived in New York, Wright was already, I think, preparing his move uh, from the States to Paris. He completed the move in 1947. He first visited Paris in 1946. When Camus got to New York, he gave a widely attended speech at Columbia University. About 600 people were expected to attend that speech at the Macmillan Theater, later the Miller Theater at Columbia, and 1,500 people turned out. So it was a, a, an enormous audience. Um, and people were, you know, very interested to to listen to this, you know, very influential commentator on France's wartime experience. But in his notes on New York, he records very few conversations with American writers other than, let's say, uh, his dinner in Chinatown with Nicola Caramonte and the Partisan Review writer Lionel Abel. The speech that he gave, would that have been in, in English or in French? That's a good question, Tom. And I'm, I'm not sure because I believe the speech was probably in French because Camus was not a fluent English speaker. I think he spoke even less English than Sartre did. And Sartre's trip to New York had preceded his by uh, about a year. The topic of that speech that he gave at Columbia was, quote unquote, the crisis of man. 
and he began the speech, he'd been asked to talk about the current state of French literature and philosophy, but this was not a subject he particularly wished to address. He said that he would be more interested in talking about the struggles of railway workers in France. In the end, he ended up talking about his generation, the generation of people in their 30s who had fed off shame, he said, and who had been horrified by the injustices of the absurd world that they had inherited and who had chosen to say no to uh, fascist authoritarianism. Which presumably went down very well with the audience. You know, Camus was a bit of a rock star. And yes, I mean, I think the the speech certainly uh, struck a chord with people in the audience. There were even veterans of the American uh, military who were brandishing copies of Combat, the journal that he had edited in clandestinity. But despite that reception that he got that turnout, he didn't he didn't really like New York very much, did he? As a city? No, 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 no. He 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 did not really uh, warm uh, to New York City. I mean, the the red carpet was really rolled out for him. I mean, he was interviewed by A.J. Liebling of The New Yorker. He was taken uh, roller skating. Um, you know, he went to jazz clubs. Uh, no, he was treated as a kind of visiting dignitary, but he didn't fancy New York City. First of all, he didn't like the look of the city. Um, there was something brutal and rude about it the the street lights the these enormous uh skyscrapers he felt uh that the whole new york ambiance was oppressive to him jean paul sartre uh, when he visited new york uh, the year before had written of something he called a a new york sickness that afflicted people uh, from the old world who came to new york looking for something that resembled a european city and then failed to find it. And I think that Camus suffered a particularly acute version of this New York sickness. And I think you, you also say in the piece that having come from, from Paris and from France and from a continent that had been devastated by war, to go to, to New York, and obviously the United States had taken part in, in the war, but there was still rationing in France, and then to come to sort of the opulence of New York and that the distance that everyone seemed to have from the war, he seemed to find difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I think that he felt that that New York was afflicted by a kind of um, blissful amnesia about the war. And and I think his sense of that was probably exacerbated by the fact that Camus was not an English speaker. And so if people were, were, were talking about the war around him, he wouldn't necessarily have overheard it in the first place. Uh, to him, New York seemed untouched by the war and oblivious to the suffering and privation that people in Europe had experienced. And I think that that uh, intensified his feeling of alienation from the city. You say he went on a tour to the Adirondacks and to New England, and he didn't, he didn't really like any of that, and he didn't like Montreal. But when he got to Quebec, he found something that he could connect to. And presumably not only the fact that people there spoke French, although that must have helped. Oh, he, I think he was really struck by the landscape, um, he said that in Quebec, he, he first had this impression of beauty and true greatness. But what I found very striking in his diary entries about Quebec is that he wrote about the Quebecois as people who were struggling in solitude, driven by a force greater than themselves. And um, I think the force that he's talking about is the force of French uh, settler colonialism, which, of course, um, had brought his own ancestors to Algeria in the 1840s. Now, of course, 
his ancestors were not uh, living in quote unquote solitude in Algeria. Algeria was a place populated by another people. But this idea of settler colonialism as an experience of solitude for the European settlers is something that actually runs through his other writings. Yeah, and I mean, of course, there was a, there were people living in Quebec already as well when the French and the British arrived there. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly, exactly. You could only imagine uh, the experience of of being a settler as one of solitude if you ignore the fact that there are other people already living in the land. So those similarities, which he, I mean, it's interesting that he kind of, he didn't explicitly say it himself, but you say that there's this, you know, his affinity for Quebec must come because it reminded him of Algeria, even if he didn't articulate it in that way, put it that way himself or, or even realize it that way. And what about, I mean, race relations in America, were there parallels with French occupied Algeria, French Algeria there as well? Well, he doesn't, you know, draw out those those parallels, but his his impressions of of race in America are interesting, and they're quite different from those of someone like uh, Jean Paul Sartre or Simone de Beauvoir, um, who wrote very um, unflinchingly about racism in the states. Beauvoir, for example, wrote about uh, uh, being in New York City with Richard Wright and attracting hostile stares from whites uh, who passed by them. Camus was aware, of course, of American racism, and, and Alice Kaplan, who edited the book and, and wrote a, a very, very fine introduction, observes that Camus was prepared for the realities of American racism, and yet his comments are permeated by a kind of desire for, for silver linings, for a, a hope that somehow ordinary relations between people can prevail over embedded structures of racial discrimination and oppression. And so he writes, for example, about uh, a white man who gets up from his seat in the bus so that a black woman can sit down and uses that anecdote as an example of a kind of everyday triumph over American racism. At the same time, he uh, he writes that um, that black culture is the only thing that that gives vitality uh, to America. And he writes of black people colonizing the states in their own way, which is a very peculiar formulation. So uh, there is a very intense kind of racial consciousness, even a racial unease in Camus' writings on the New World. And um, I do think it has to be understood in relation to his Algerian experience. Yeah, and as you say in the, in the piece, that, that phrase, using the word colonize, that colonize in their own way, there are echoes of great replacement theory and white supremacist arguments, racist arguments about this idea of reverse colonization. There, there certainly are. I mean, I think that obviously his his intentions are are well meaning. Uh, he's welcoming the the counter colonization, as it were. Um, but yes, it does evoke that idea. And uh, funnily enough, uh, the the architect, uh, the uh, the inventor of the idea of the Great Replacement, is a French writer named Renaud Camus. No relation, but. Just an interesting coincidence. Yeah, I mean, and that, I mean, also because the the story of the the white man giving up his seat on the bus is, I mean, obviously it's ten years before the the, the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycotts. But I mean, is Camus, as it were, appear to be suggesting that if only Rosa Parks hadn't been made to give up her seat, then everything would be fine? And there seems to be a <laughs> there's that's not there's something sort of inadequate in that view of in that view of it. Well, I think that this underlines maybe the limits of uh, Camus' 
very individualistic understanding of political humanism. There's far less of an emphasis on overcoming collective structures of oppression than on acts of individual goodwill. And I mean, it's hard perhaps to say which came first, but that must be connected to his his anti-communism and his differences with with Sartre and Beauvoir over over that. I mean, which came first? Uh, I mean, those liberal instincts lead to his rejection of communism, or was it his rejection of communism fostered his liberal instincts? Yeah, I think I think it probably is connected in some ways to his anti-communism, but I, I see it as more connected to his understanding of uh, of the French Algeria situation. I think it has more to do with the French Algeria situation and his discomfort with Algerian nationalism and with the idea that Algeria deserved to be independent uh, of France. Um, uh, Camus thought of himself as a critic of colonialism. And in fact, you know, he had written brilliant critiques of French policy uh, in the late 1930s, uh, particularly his uh, series of articles on misery in Kabylia. And these were, it was a very important series of pieces that he published in Alger Républicain. This was when Camus was in the Communist Party in Algeria. But uh, he stopped short of the idea of an Algeria that would no longer be attached to France, which uh, Algeria's independence activists were militating for. Um, and Algerian nationalists in the 1940s uh, respected Camus. He was one of the only Europeans uh, who criticized the French massacres in Sétif and Guelma after the V-Day rebellion in 1945. This was at a time when the Communist Party was describing the Sétif and Guelma uprising as Hitlerite. Camus, to his credit, uh, saw the French response uh, as a massacre. And yet, the idea of Algerian independence was unfathomable to him. And so it was his understanding that Algeria would be decolonized without the French actually leaving. You know, Algeria would remain in a kind of federal structure uh, with France. France would continue to exert considerable influence over Algeria. Algeria would remain a French country only the Algerian Muslim majority would have equal rights within it, but not national rights. And so I think that, you know, Camus has a very acute consciousness of himself as a member of a white minority in an Arab and Berber majority country. And I do think that infuses his writings about the question of race and color when he's in the new world. I mean, it's getting away from the subject a bit and skipping ahead, but did his his views on Algerian nationalism change sort of through the 50s or no? No, no, not, not fundamentally, I think. Um, you know, Camus, uh, as an individual with strong connections to the French establishment, he helped to save a number of Algerian nationalists who were in prison or who were um, on death row. And he did this privately, to his credit. But he also rejected negotiations uh, with the FLN, um, the Algerian National Liberation Front, which he regarded as a kind of um, Nasserist organization. He thought that uh, the FLN was um, partly a, a plot by the Egyptians and by communists to destabilize France. He 
believed that there was no Algerian nation, that the idea of an Algerian nation was um, was a myth. Now, let's put aside the fact that the idea of most nations is a myth, but he regarded Algérie Française as more of a reality than the Algerian nation. And uh, he, in 1956, he called for uh, a civil truce to be respected by both sides, by the French government and the FLN. In other words, uh, an agreement not to attack uh, civilians. But it was a it was a noble but somewhat toothless proposition because it was never coupled with uh, a critique of French policy, of torture, of um, the killing of Algerian civilians, and a call for negotiations towards independence. And so, in effect, Camus remained very much a supporter of Algérie Française on the grounds that... Um, that he would have to defend uh, his mother before he would defend the cause of justice in Algeria. Now, he was understandably horrified by some of the tactics of the FLN, by the, the bombings and the killings of civilians, but he was, for the most part, I think, blind to uh, the policies that the French were, were, were using, except, as I mentioned, in his private capacity as a citizen. So his, no, his position didn't change, and eventually he fell silent, although remarkably in his novel, uh, The First Man, a novel that he never finished, which is uh, an autobiographical book about growing up in colonial Algeria, he allows himself to say certain things about colonization and about the conquest, which he really didn't say publicly. And uh, that book contains, especially in its appendix, criticisms of the French presence that he either didn't have the courage or the willingness uh, to say publicly. So I think he was tortured. And I mean, this is an impossible question, but I mean, if he had lived on into the 60s, would his position have changed? Would it have had to have changed? Well, it would have had to have changed because independence came in 1962. It's hard to know what he would have made of independence and of the of the government that took power in Algeria. I mean, he could well have said that some of his criticisms uh, were vindicated because the state that emerged in post-independence Algeria was a one-party regime, uh, as he had anticipated, and largely owing to the violence of the right-wing settlers backed by fascist elements in the army, the OAS, the uh, secret army organization, it was not possible for the French to remain in Algeria after the war. And about a million uh, French settlers, the uh, the Pieds Noirs, left Algeria. And by, I think, 1963, there were very, very few French people left in the country. I think that this probably would have been a source of great uh, pain and sorrow uh, for Camus, as it was for most of the people who left. Now, whether that would have ended up with Camus aligning himself with the Pied Noir ultras who felt that they had lost Algeria, it's hard to say. Um, maybe we were spared that because it would have been tragic for a writer of Camus' stature to have taken that position. We'll never know. Leaving leaving behind the counterfactuals, going back to his his trip to America. So he left, what, after three months in June... June 1946, he was on, on the boat back to France, getting a suntan and having sent ahead vast amounts of food to his family in, um, in France. Is that right? Did you say that 80 pounds of coffee 
flour. Presuming that's 80 pounds in total. It's not 80 pounds of coffee. It's 80 pounds of everything. <laughs> yes, like any tourist at that time, given the, you know, the rations in France, he, uh, he made sure that there was a very large care package uh, before he departed the States. And when he got back to France, you say that he, you say he went to the Vendée and finished writing La Peste, which he started five years earlier. So had he, had he nearly finished it anyway? Or was there a sense in which going to America somehow accelerated the, the writing process? I think it, it did accelerate it. He was, he was having a very difficult time finishing the novel when he was in France, just before his trip to the States, he was experiencing something that he often experienced in his life as a writer, which was just punishing self-doubt. And he uh, finished the book pretty quickly on his return. The book was published in, in 1947, so I think less than a year after he returned from the States. And it was even more successful than, than Les Granger. No, it was an enormous success. And uh, partly that's owing to the fact that it was an allegory about life under occupation. It was um, a novel of a plague breaking out in the uh, coastal city of Oran. Now, strangely enough, this is an Oran where there are hardly any Arabs. In fact, there are fewer Arabs in uh, the plague, uh, La Peste, than there are in his novel, The Stranger, where uh, the Arab who is killed notoriously doesn't even have a name. Uh, Oran is depicted essentially as a as a European city, which it was at the time. But the themes of the novel about uh, uh, resilience and stoicism and struggle in the face of a mortal enemy struck a very powerful chord with uh, a readership, not just in France, but really throughout the world. It was in some ways La Peste more than L'Etranger, which established him as a writer of international stature. And of course, it's the one that people have been reading more in recent years that during the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course. That sales of, yeah. Absolutely. But then in 1949, he took this trip to South America. And that wasn't a, a book tour, was it? I mean, he wasn't there to, to promote La Peste. So what was, the, what was the motive for the trip to South America? Well, the motive for the trip was that Camus was going through a period of transition uh, sparked by the acrimonious debates about the emerging Cold War. Camus had broken with communism in the uh, late 1930s, and he had decided that the Soviet Union was a country that preyed upon other countries. Um, I think that his break was occasioned by the, um, the Hitler-Stalin pact, along with the Communist Party's vacillations on the colonial question. And some of his old uh, comrades in the Tom Modern circle, Jean-Paul Sartre most famously, were taking, if not a pro-Moscow line, then the line that, uh, that the Soviet Union was a kind of objective ally. It represented humanity's uh, progressive aspirations and that uh, it was simply not politic to criticize uh, the Soviet Union. And so uh, Camus still very much regarded himself as a leftist and a socialist, and he wasn't ready to embrace the West or much less the United States, of, of which he'd had a fairly negative image um, on his trip. But he felt, um, I think, increasingly uh, lonely and isolated. And uh, uh, the, uh, the director of cultural relations uh, at the foreign ministry, uh, a man named uh, Roger uh, Seydoux said 
you know, you might want to take a little time out, go to South America, we can organize a lecture tour. And that's how this trip originated. I, I just wanted to say that one of the odd things about the politics of the time and about this lecture tour is that Camus was very apprehensive about going to Latin American countries that were dominated by military regimes that were targeting their communist oppositions. You know, because Camus was someone who, although he had broken with the Communist Party, although he uh, loathed uh, the oppression in the Soviet Union, still on some level saw members of the communist left as people who would be his natural allies. You know, these regimes in South America were cracking down on intellectuals and trade unionists uh, who, you know, whatever their sympathies for the Soviet Union were progressive in inclination. They were the kind of people that Camus felt he could speak to. So he was unsure about whether he wanted to visit these countries in an official capacity. Sure. And they, I mean, they were also regimes that were giving shelter to fugitive Nazis as well, weren't they? I mean, the number of... They, they were. They were doing that. And they were also, well, one of them was banning a production of his play, Le Malentendu, The Misunderstanding, the, the government in, in Buenos Aires, the Argentine Peronist regime. And he told uh, the, uh, Olivier Todd, uh, Camus' biographer, says that on the eve of his trip... Camus was struck by this, this vague sense that evil was floating in the air. He had these, these disturbing premonitions about what was going to happen on his trip. But he overcame his doubts. Is that because he, his need to get away from Paris was so strong? That... Yeah, he was desperate to get away from Paris. I think that's the main reason. But of course, by leaving Paris, he was also taking leave, not just of his family, his wife, Francine Faure, and their two children, but also of his mistress, uh, Maria Cazares, who was uh, uh, a Spanish actress, the daughter of left-wing exiles, the Spanish Republic. And, and Cazares and Camus had been involved in the mid-1940s, but when his wife, Francine, came to France uh, from Algeria, uh, he and Maria Cazares had split. Um, and so they were not together at the time that he visited uh, New York City and the States. But shortly before he uh, went to South America, he had run, run into Maria Cazares on the Boulevard Saint-Germain, and their relationship was rekindled, and he remained with her uh, for the remainder of his life. And so one of the things that's really striking about the journals in South America is his uh, just ferocious sense of, of loneliness and despair. And it's very much related to the fact that Maria Cazares, for whatever reason, either wasn't writing to him or he wasn't receiving her letters. And it left him very distraught. So when he first got to, he arrived in Rio de Janeiro, where he was met by someone who he seems to have liked even less than, than Claude Lévi-Strauss. Yes, he, he met a man named Augusto Frederico Schmidt, whom he described as huge, indolent, squinty-eyed, mouth-hanging open, Schmidt was a, a poet uh, and a publisher who prided himself on being a Francophile and who uh, took him to a restaurant and uh, regaled him with anecdotes about other French writers and uh, declared that uh, Camus' appearance in Brazil was just about the greatest event that had happened in Brazil in, in recent times. And the man was, was obsequious and overbearing. And uh, Camus had an experience that is not uncommon 
for celebrity writers um, on tour, which is that they're surrounded by you know, sycophants who also have their own agendas. Yeah. And some of the things which he'd, he'd been hoping to leave behind in, in Paris, he found waiting for him in Rio while, while missing the other things which he had left behind in Paris. Exactly. It must have seemed like a terrible mistake. Well, well, it, it might have. And yet at the same time, you know, what I uh, find so interesting about the, the journals in South America is that Camus is far more connected to place and far more responsive and curious in South America than he was um, in North America. He seems to be moved in some ways by uh, the local culture, by the religious ceremonies that he attends, in, in, uh, particularly in, in uh, black parts of Brazil. He likes the climate. I think that in many ways, South America reminded him of home. And even before he arrived in South America, uh, he had had to stop in Dakar. And in Dakar, he writes rapturously about uh, the people that he observes there, about uh, African dress, about the, the elegance of people dancing. And, uh, and he writes that uh, he feels that he's in the presence of, quote unquote, my Africa. Now, it's a, it's a phrase that feels very musty today. You know, because it suggests both uh, an attachment to place and uh, homesickness, maybe, and but also of colonial possession. But there's no question that he felt a sense of recognition in South America and this hot, semi-feudal place uh, that he didn't experience um, uh, while he was in the States, which felt uh, very, uh, I think, very, very modern and and um, unfeeling and inhuman to him. Yeah, there's a line that you quote from from the journals that he. You say he took consolation in the fact that the skyscraper hasn't yet conquered the forest spirit. I mean, he'd be horrified if he went to Sao Paulo today, which makes which makes Manhattan <laughs> look like a look like a village. But the um, but despite those things, and Tom, of course, he he did say, you know, when he was writing about the vastness of Brazil, he did say that ultimately places like France and Spain would come to seem like villages in the face of the enormity of the developing world. I mean, he was frightened by what he saw. This is the future. Which is interesting because earlier we were talking about the reverse colonization idea, which he was not frightened of in America. But now it seems as if there was some idea of that that he, he did begin to be frightened by. Well, I think that on the, one, on the one hand, it appears inconsistent. On the other hand, perhaps it isn't. I mean, there was this, um, I think Camus, like many French writers of his time, had this you might say the tourist fascination with so-called primitive cultures. And so it was one thing to have a, uh, you know, a jazz musician or singer injecting a bit of cultural vitality and life into a majority white country, such as the States. It was another thing if uh, countries like Brazil ended up having more influence on the world stage. So I think it has to do with, with matters of scale, too. I mean, there's one point in the in the piece where you say that his writing is often more interesting today as a symptom of the crisis of the West in an age of decolonization, and that seems to be. I mean, that's what you're saying. Well, because I think the strongest sense that you that you get from from Camus' writing on South America, in particular, is one of fascination, fear, and acute disorientation. Now, of course, you know we have to keep in mind that Camus' impressions and experiences were sharpened 
by the fact that he suffered from tuberculosis and and he was grappling with frequent and really awful episodes of what he calls his fevers. And so Camus was physically uncomfortable for much of his journey. And I, and I don't think you can, you can entirely disentangle these experiences of uprooting, of isolation, of fear from, from his bodily suffering. Yeah, so when he, he describes himself in Montevideo as in the midst of a psychological meltdown, but that was connected to physical meltdown. It was connected to the physical meltdown, and I think also it was very much connected to the fact that he had been writing every day to Maria Cazares, and she had not been replying, or for some reason, he had not received uh, her letters, and he was desperate for a reply. And it's clear that that, that was what lay behind his, his terror and, and also his thoughts of suicide, because he was frequently visited by thoughts of suicide. And as you know, uh, the question of suicide lay at the heart of his book, uh, The Myth of Sisyphus. And do we know that the, the mystery of whether or not she was writing or she wasn't writing or the letters get lost? You sort of imagine this almost slightly, I mean, it seems unfair to call it comic, but imagine him, he just leaves Montevideo and her letter arrives at the post restaurant, but he's already moved on to Buenos Aires, so he doesn't get it. And somehow her letter's <laughs> arriving just a little bit too late as he... As he makes his, I mean, what was the postal service like between, between France? And... Uh, you, you you wonder. I mean, they they exchanged something like they have they had a correspondence of I, I think it was more than eight hundred letters. The the entire correspondence is nearly a thousand pages. Stories have been written about it. Radio plays. I mean, it's a mythic affair in the French imagination. Yeah, but with this this gap, while he was in South yes. America. Another, yeah, another play to be written. If only they'd had WhatsApp. It would, uh... <laughs> and is there, I mean, once he returned from South America, is there a discernible effect of that trip, of those journeys in, in his later writing? So when Camus returned from South America, he was suffering from depression, from eczema, from insomnia, and he was afraid for his life. Um, he spent a number of months uh, recovering and in one of his journals, he writes, uh, he quotes Herman Melville, um, something Herman Melville had said at the age of 35, which is, I have consented to annihilation. So uh, the trip clearly left him with some regrets. And yet there is this story that he published um, in his uh, collection, The Exile and the Kingdom, and it's called The Growing Stone. And it's a story set in Brazil. Uh, in a town south of Sao Paulo called uh, Iguape, which Camus himself had visited. And when Camus went there, he was harassed by a a drunken police officer uh, for his papers. And uh, the townspeople were so uh, infuriated by this police officer's demand that they told Camus that he was going to be punished. They, They actually arrested this police officer promised to punish him and said to Camus, it's your choice how we're going to punish him. And Camus didn't want this man punished. He just wanted to move on. That story reappears in The Growing Stone. Um, This French engineer has also been harassed uh, for his papers by a police officer. And in the story, at the end of the story, we see him in this darkly lit room uh, in the home of a a cook of, of mixed race, a man he's befriended. And the murmur of the river fills the French engineer with what Camus describes as a tumultuous happiness. And, and I think that 
that in this story, we see a, a glimpse of this reconciliation between old world and new world, between European and non-European that Camus sought but never achieved in his own life. Now, your podcast series that starts in January, where you'll be talking in turn to, to Judith Butler, Pankaj Mishra and Brent Hayes Edwards. You've talked a little bit about Sartre, who is one of the thinkers you'll be talking to Judith Butler about. Also Beauvoir, also Fanon, not Camus. I mean, obviously, you're limited. You have to be exclusive. There are reasons of picking people and either not. But why, why Sartre and not Camus? It's a good question. Now, I, I should say that these were not my choices. <laughs> these were the choices made by the distinguished philosopher, uh, Judith Butler. And I can't uh, speak in Judith Butler's words, but my, my sense is that Camus is not among these, these thinkers because as resonant and powerful a writer as Camus could be and remains, he was not an insurgent thinker. There's something a little backward in some ways about Camus' understanding of the world. He belongs to a world that crumbled. And his writing is partly defined by a kind of melancholy refusal of that change. Now, in the case of, uh, of The First Man, the posthumously published novel, I would say that that melancholy is also a form of resignation because he's aware that this world is going to change and that there's really nothing he can do. Um, Algeria uh, will eventually become Algerian. It will no longer be France. I think, uh, you know, another reason that Camus is not a part of this uh, circle of thinkers um, in the series is that while Camus was understood to be and in some way understood himself as a uh, philosopher, uh, Camus was, was not a particularly strong thinker conceptually. Uh, the ideas that we associate with Camus, such as the concept of absurdity, are suggestive, but in many ways rather flimsy. Camus, I think, is most effective as a writer of landscape, as an evoker of uh, the world of, of the Mediterranean, of the Latin ruins of Algeria, of the sea, which you know plays such an important role in his diaries in both North and South America. Camus was not someone who invented and produced concepts with which we are still grappling today um, in the manner of a Beauvoir or a Fanon or a Jean-Paul Sartre. Now, to be sure, Camus got some things right, which Sartre and Beauvoir got wrong. And I don't want to... Yeah, I mean, I think Camus had a much better understanding of the Gulag than Sartre did. But uh, uh, Camus' views on colonialism in particular make him seem an antiquated, if not obsolete, thinker. And I think that his views on the subject are most interesting uh, in historical terms. We see the struggle of someone who belongs to this white European minority and who is aware that the world is changing and uh, for his own autobiographical reasons just cannot accept it. And there's a, there's a sadness to it as well. I mean, would you say he was more of a, there are ways in which Camus was more of a journalist than a philosopher? Yeah, I think he was a journalist and a novelist. Um, I mean, Camus was a, a, a much more powerful imaginative writer than Jean-Paul Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre's novels are novels 
of ideas, essentially, perhaps with the exception of, of La Nose. Uh, even when Camus was writing what he thought were novels of ideas, like The Stranger or La Peste, what we're left with really is something that is less tangible, that is more emotive and, and effective. We read those books because of their aura of disquiet and the way that they that they evoke the enigmas of the human condition, not because of the ideas that they present. I don't think of Camus as a thinker, really. I think of Camus more as a as a witness of the 40s and the mid-century more than as a, a thinker and theorist. Yeah, witness is exactly the word. Adam Schatz, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Tom. You can read Adam's piece on Camus' adventures or misadventures in the New World in the 19th of October edition of the London Review of Books. For details of how to subscribe to Adam's Close Readings podcast series, in which he'll be discussing different strands of 20th century revolutionary thought with a series of three interlocutors, Pankaj Mishra and Brent Hayes-Edwards, as well as Judith Butler, click on the link in this podcast description. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.